Hello and welcome to the latest uh, Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust's Handbook. Today, I'm not being joined by Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research, Winterflood Securities, because as you will have learned last week, he is moving on to another job. He's going to be leaving Winterfloods and joining JP Morgan Asset Management. He'd been very sorry to lose him. Uh, he's built up a big fan club over the last two years that we've been doing this podcast. But I'm delighted to say that today, in his place, I'm being joined by a man who has been involved in the investment trust sector considerably longer even than Simon, which is uh, Peter Spiller, the uh, manager of Capital Gearing Trust. Peter's been the manager of Capital Gearing for 40 years and is the longest serving fund manager in the investment trust sector. So welcome, Peter. It's very good to have you on this uh, podcast. Um, Good to be here. uh, I was going to say that if you could say about anybody in the investment trust sector that uh, what he doesn't know isn't worth knowing, I was going to say that about you because of your long experience at the helm of Capital Gearing Trust. But I guess there will be one or two things in the investment trust sector where maybe that isn't the case. For example, um, I'm not sure whether in the uh, Music Royalty Trust, whether you'd be particular familiar with all the artists there, the, the grunge and the and the rappers. Would that be would that be a fair comment? <laughs> for, for the rest, there's no one else I'd, uh, I'd rather talk to about investment trusts. But in any case, uh, Jonathan, we are all always still learning. Nothing stands still. Indeed. Well, that's certainly true uh, in my case and uh, indeed in the case of most of our listeners, I'm sure. So we're going to kick off normally, we're going to quick word about the markets. Later on, we're going to talk about comparisons between what's happening today and what happened in the 1970s, when uh, you're, you were one of the few professional investors who were actually working in the 1970s uh, and can remember it very well, I'm sure. In the normal way, I'll also be mentioning some of the key results and corporate developments that have taken place in the last few days. Uh, a reminder that subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, our subscription service, can access a complete list of all the significant investment trust announcements that were made this week, together with tables showing the most significant movements in share prices, NAVs and discounts, both this week and over longer periods year to date. In addition, we have the latest in our regular series of in-depth investment trust profiles, this time featuring the Caledonia Investment Trust and my own uh, editor's notes. Next week, I will be talking to Nick Greenwood, the manager of the Migo Opportunities Trust, another trust which only invests in other investment trusts, uh, for the weekly podcast, at which point I'll be setting out how we intend to take the weekly podcast forward from there, uh, now that Simon is uh, sadly no longer available to do it with me. So, kicking off with the market this week, Peter, meanwhile, the Investment Trust Index has been down, and we're recording this on a Friday morning, it's been down four days running, that performed slightly worse than the UK equity market. And year to date, the sector is down 19% against the uh, FTSE All Shares 6.1%. So the actual performance of the Investment Trust Index has been pretty much akin to what's happened in the uh, S&P 500, which is down about 20%. Uh, What's your reading of how this compares to previous uh, sell-offs we've had in the equity markets? Well, the first thing to say is, is that the UK market has lagged for a long time. So... The fact that it's doing much better than the World Index and the Investment Trust Index is uh, really just making up for that. Of course, a large part of it is to do with central makeup. So a lot of oils and mines and banks have done very well this year. And uh, there's equally an almost total absence, sadly, of tech. And that has, of course, been the area that's been running fastest for the last decade, but not this year. 
And if we look at the broader picture, though, what's happened so far, the big sell-off in equity markets, rise in bond yields, concerns about inflation. This is a story that perhaps has taken a number of investors by surprise, but not, I suspect, you. I mean, you've been predicting that inflation was going to be high and uh, more persistently high than the central banks, at least, have been saying for some time. So this is not a total surprise to you. No. So I think that we've had a very unusual period for the last 30 years where the deflationary winds blowing from China have meant that central banks could be very accommodative and still not suffer inflation beyond their targets. So um, they've been heroes, had very high standing in that period because of that ability to stimulate uh, without causing inflation. But without those courses of globalization being sustained, then the world will look much more like the 60s and 70s. And we have to go back to analyzing it in those ways. And against that background, one has to remember that the PE in the late 60s on the S&P 500 was 24. By the time I started running the trust in the early 80s, it pulled seven. So we had quite a marked change. I don't think it's going to be as big as that, but certainly on our analysis, what we have seen so far has not made the market look good value by normal standards. It obviously is better value than it was, but we've got some way to go before we get to that value. Right. So uh, the shoe that hasn't dropped perhaps so far is that corporate earnings at the moment are still quite rosy, uh, the projections from analysts and so on. But if it follows the path that you just described, then we would surely expect to see earnings come down this year if we do get a slowdown. And that in turn will mean that uh, the forward-looking PE will uh, have to come down further. Well, indeed, all the market can fall without the PE changing, of course, if the earnings are coming down. But the market, we do not have the same view as the market, what the future holds for the economies, because the market's view is very much that we will get recession Something like a soft landing, I think, but that will be enough to bring inflation down to the target levels of two on a sustainable basis. So basically, if you look at the break-evens in America, they forecast that after this brief period of blip in inflation, inflation will revert to 2% for the next 30 years. We fear that it might be much more stagflationary than that, and that inflation will become embedded at significantly higher levels. And higher levels of inflation and higher levels of interest rates are really unhelpful to PE ratios that have been the history. They're not conducive to the the kind of performance that we've seen in uh, the last few years. It's Uh, been wonderful. Yeah, it's been wonderful, but it looks like we're going to have a long, hot summer, and more than that, we're going to have a long, hot couple of years, almost certainly. Against that, one perhaps could say, well, if you look at what's been happening to commodity prices, oil has fallen below $100 a barrel this week, having peaked uh, quite a bit higher than that. And we've seen things like copper and so on sell off, which are also typically regarded as being warnings of uh, slower economic growth ahead. So what you're effectively telling me, I think, is that uh, we're not going to avoid some kind of very uh, sticky period that's going to last longer than uh, people expect at the moment. There's fantastic... uh, idea that uh, inflation is going to be back at 2% within 18 months or something. That's just nonsense as far as you're concerned. Well, when the market believes something, it is always foolish to say it cannot be correct. But our suspicion is that things are a little less helpful than that. So copper, as you rightly point out, is always held to have a PhD, and hence it's known as Dr. Copper, because of its powerful record 
of indicating uh, recessions. And the message from the copper price is pretty unambiguous. I have to say in the medium term, I think copper is very underpriced because it is absolutely essential to the electrification of the world, which we need to do if we're going to achieve our environmental ambitions. So what we expect is a very slow growth. And the Fed appears to believe, or they do believe, that somewhere between four and four and a half percent for unemployment is where you get wages neither accelerating nor decelerating. Um, and we're 3.6 at the moment. So the Fed is plainly tolerant of unemployment rising by a half percent or three quarters. However, I think the case has been very well made by others that actually the NARO is five. Uh, arguably higher, and we fear anyway that the Fed will bottle it before inflation is due because it will not be able to tolerate the rising unemployment associated with their policy. And that be our medium term base case. As mentioned earlier, it's absurd to say the market cannot be right, made up of very intelligent people and wisdom of crowds is often. Uh, Obviously, we all have heard about the, the Fed put and so on, the idea that they will step in if the market gets too badly damaged and so on. But they have a lot of credibility to, to regain the central banks here. Um, and uh, I think there are some people who think, well, they really have got to prove their credentials of inflation fighters. Yes. But how long can they persist with that? I mean, they are notionally independent, politically independent. But um, we know that if we could make this comparison to the 1970s, where, you know, central bankers, the governors of the federal Reserve were not totally immune to uh, political pressure, shall we say. So there well, may be some subtle things going on here as well as some what they so, say publicly. So, uh, indeed, Johnson. Back in the early 70s, of course, they were not independent even nationally. But I would say independence is an interesting thing to look at because they are, of course, independent, notwithstanding many penny mordants belief. But um, they are not independent of the zeitgeist. So the thought process, I would say, of the Fed has been very much bought into the idea that they should prioritise employment over inflation. And it was that belief that led them to take actions, or frankly, be very, very late in moving, which undermined their credibility. And they do, as you correctly point out, they do have to maintain that credibility. So they are handling very hard to try and re-establish their, their credibility. And... Um, it's just very interesting to discuss what happens next year, for instance, because although if we're right, the market's right, inflation just be very low, so that's fine. They can take their foot off the pedal and pivot. But if we are right and, and inflation is more persistent, what we mean by that is core inflation is more persistent than wages. But of course, because of the anniversary effect, there are all sorts of things which will push down the rate of inflation, which have pushed it up this year. So shipping, for instance, the shipping problems have added, uh, I've seen estimates of 1.5% to the price level. Presumably that will be sorted out over the next uh, couple of years. Shipping costs are already down by a quarter. So that will come off the price level, reduce inflation. It's quite a good bet that the oil price will be significantly lower than the $120 we got to on the anniversary of that $120. So that also will reduce inflation. So actually, the headline number could be really low next year, um, notwithstanding that core inflation is, is sustained. 
And I think my reading anyway is that um, with a low headline number, Fed find it quite easy to pivot and start cutting rates again, probably far too early to control the medium-term core inflation. Right. So that does sound to me like a, a recipe for what we call stagflation, if that's how it turns out, because you'll have persistent the core inflation by the target and presumably continue some slowing down in growth. Um, it's a, um, an echo of what used to be called in the late 60s and 70s, you may recall it, of stop go. Stop go, indeed, yes. I do remember uh, that. So yeah. That's a, a phrase which may re-emerge in, in uh, the commentary. So if you're right about that, Peter, what does that imply, you know, in broad terms, in the way that equities and bonds will behave over the course of this adjustment period, if you can call it that? It'll obviously be quite negative for bonds to have inflation much worse than expectation. If that were to happen, tips are much more interesting. Index linked, yeah. Um, yep. do offer positive real yields now. I mean, historically, equities have not enjoyed rising inflation expectations. So if you take a full cycle, i.e. starting with low inflation, rising inflation, and then falling away again, over the full cycle, uh, equities do fine. They do very well. But it turns out almost all the return comes from the peak of inflation. So the disinflationary period is very, very positive. The rising inflation period is less positive. And I've been thinking about why that should be the case, because although the general statement is correct, the years from 66 to 69 were very good for equities. Everyone believed that, that they were real assets and so forth. But I think the reason why the general statement holds is that if you have rising inflation, then inherent in that is the policy response, which will lead to recession. So that brief period was an aberration. 66 to 69. But it's worth remembering that inflation went from 1.5% to 6 over that period. Indeed. How does the war in Ukraine fit into your picture? I don't know if your crystal ball is any better than mine on that, but uh, you know, it's certainly uh, complicating uh, assessing what's going on, is it not? Well, I have no idea how long the war's going to last. I sort of assume, like everybody else, that it's going to be quite a long time. It looks all bit like a stalemate, doesn't it? But the interesting thing about the war is that it obviously has created shortages of various things. So wheat, although the wheat price has come down quite a lot, actually. But obviously um, oil and gas. The gas is interesting because back last summer, we bought a whole lot of green infrastructure, or actually the autumn of green infrastructure, long before the war, because it appeared that Putin was exploiting the large market share that Russia had of the supply of gas to Europe, in the same way that OPEC had exploited its large market share in the oil market in the 70s, and price was rising long, long before the war, because Putin was able to calculate that if he cut production a bit, prices would go up enough more to compensate and his revenues would increase. So as we speak today, we have no idea whether the Nord Stream pipeline will reopen after its maintenance period. You can argue it either way. You could argue it needs the money, but um, you could also argue that uh, it's a weapon of war which will uh, undermine support for Ukraine from Europe. Because even now, the cost of the war in terms of the higher prices that Europe is paying 
amount to something like one and a half percent of GDP or three percent of consumption. So these are big numbers and will have a very depressing effect on Europe. And even worse, in the medium term, we expect the cost of gas and of power in Europe to be significantly higher than it was before all this began because they've got to restructure their sources of supply. LNG can replace over time pipeline gas, but it's always more expensive. You've got to ship it. You've got to freeze it and unfreeze it, which typically consumes about 15% of the gas that you're transporting. So the price is going to be significantly higher. And that's very bad news for European industry, which is mostly concentrated in Germany. So the war will have major long-term consequences as well as the short-term inflationary impulse that it's providing. Before we move on to talk about the outlook for investors against this backcloth, Peter, I'm going to quickly, uh, more quickly than usual, uh, summarise the main news from the sector that we've had this week. I'm going to kick off with uh, corporate and some housekeeping items that have come up this week, been announced this week, starting with hellos and goodbyes. Uh, a couple of fund manager changes to report this week. Uh, J.P. Morgan, American, that's ticker J-A-M. Timothy Parton, who is the named investment manager for the fund's growth portfolio. Uh, he is planning to retire in early 2024. So that is a couple of years' time, but we're being given good notice there. And he's going to continue with his uh, current responsibilities until he retires. And uh, J.P. Morgan, American, will be making an announcement regarding his agreed successor in due course. Meanwhile, over at Ruffer Investment uh, Company, ticker RICA, uh, the uh, very popular trust that operates in the flexible investment sector and has a defensive bias in the name of outperforming in most market conditions. It's been announced that Hamish Bailey, who is one of the co-managers of the fund and a partner of Ruffer LLP, uh, the management business, is uh, going to be stepping down at the end of July to pursue other opportunities. And his co-manager, Duncan McGuinness, will continue as a manager of the fund and there may be a second appointment there in due course. Uh, you may recall that uh, if you listen to the Moneymakers Circle, we've had a couple of chats with uh, Hamish Bailey over the last couple of years. Very interesting on Ruffer's philosophy. No more details on that one, though. And then in terms of trusts, which we may be about to lose, there's been an update from Scott Gems, the Global Emerging Markets Trust, ticker SGEM. On the 1st of July, the board announced that it had decided to put forward some proposals for the voluntary liquidation of the trust, which has had a fairly unhappy time over the last few years. Performance has been pretty poor. And the proposals, if approved, will provide full cash exit, less costs. Uh, no rollover option here, as we discussed last week. And the board has given the investment manager the instruction to realise the investment portfolio in an orderly manner. And the update is that about 67% of the portfolio, I about two-thirds, has been realised to date, and the proceeds are being held in sterling. And the timing of the realisation of the remainder of the portfolio will depend on prevailing market conditions. That trust continues to trade at a discount. It's around 9%, but that's lower than it has been on average over the last year. The discount's been at pretty wide, 19%. So you would expect that to come down as the portfolio is realised, and eventually uh, you'd hope that there would be a return of the full amount at or close to NAV less costs. Then a couple of other interesting corporate announcements I might just mention here. First of all, we've heard that Roundhill Music Royalty, one of the two music royalty trusts, 
uh, ticker RHM, is applying for admission to a premium listing on the official list and to the London Stock Exchange for trading on the premium sector of the main market. It's currently trading on the specialist fund segment. And the idea, as so often in these cases, is the changes they hope will uh, broaden the appeal of this particular trust to a wider range of shareholders. Uh, and they're also intending to introduce an additional market quote, this one denominated in sterling, rather than simply having a dollar share class as now. More information on that one in due course. I'll mention this again briefly when we talk about Song's latest results in a moment. Also among corporate announcements, we've heard that Pershing Square Holdings, ticker PSH, which is the hedge fund managed by Bill Ackman, a well-known US investor, and it's saying that Pershing Square Tontine Holdings, in which Pershing Square Holdings has a equity interest, it's published a letter to that company's shareholders and is giving details of how it's going to return the $4 billion to shareholders that it subscribed in the hope that that would form part of the funding of a SPAC, or Special Purpose Acquisition Company, which is one of these things that uh, became very popular briefly last year in the New York Stock Exchange in particular, where companies were effectively uh, raising blind asset pools uh, to invest in things that would help them as an alternative to uh, uh, doing a public listing. A lot of people thought that was pretty controversial at the time, why would a company want to uh, dodge all the uh, more onerous requirements surrounding a listing? And SPAC seemed like uh, something which is too good to be true. And in, certainly in the case of Pershing Square Holdings, it's failed to find a target that it says meets its manager's investment criteria and is capable of being done within the time frame. Uh, however, undeterred, Pershing Square is still working on what it calls a SPARC structure, which is a privately funded acquisition vehicle which intends to issue publicly traded long-term warrants. So these are quite uh, sophisticated instruments and uh, Bill Ackman has been quite prominent in promoting the issue of SPACs, but uh, this particular one has not come to anything. And in the current market conditions, you have to wonder whether this uh, spark will actually work either. Uh, meanwhile, Pershing Square continues to trade on a big discount, something which the board has uh, said it's trying to do something about, uh, but it's currently still trading on a discount of around 32 which is slightly wider even than its average over the last year. I should also mention Chrysalis Investments. And we've talked a lot about that on this podcast, ticker CHRY, where we mentioned before the speculation or the newspaper reports that the valuation of one of its largest portfolio holdings, the buy now, pay later lending company Klarna, was going to have its valuation reduced in its latest funding round. And this has now been confirmed Klarna has been valued in its latest funding round at uh, 6.65 billion US dollars. Uh, that's after taking account of the new money which has been raised, some 800 million US dollars. And that uh, price at which that uh, funding was done represents a material discount to uh, the current carrying value. So as a result, Chrysalis has committed to its uh, pro rata entitlement under the uh, funding round. That's uh, 8.7 million US dollars and so it won't suffer any dilution. But of course, its own NAV and share price has been badly hit by this markdown in the valuation of its uh, largest holding, Klarna. The fund's NAV per share was 211p as at the 31st of March, and the announcement from the company says that it's estimated that the revised valuation of Klarna, taking account of movement of listed assets and foreign exchange movements as well, would result in a decrease in the NAV per share of 32p 
down to 179.5p. So that's a significant markdown. On the other hand, though, there's another holding, WeFox Holding AG, which has closed a latest funding round as well, uh, and that has raised $400 million of equity and debt, which values the business at $4.5 billion US dollars. Chrysalis, however, did not participate in that funding round, and the achieved valuation underpins the current carrying value, so the company says. So this has been confirmation of something that's been rumoured to be on the way for a while, but the impact on Chrysalis's share prices continues to be pretty marked. It's trading uh, at a discount of around 50% now uh, to the last published NAV, and uh, of course that partly reflects the fact that uh, the market was aware that this component portfolio company was going to be marked heavily down. However, it is uh, an indication of the extent to which private equity trusts are vulnerable to seeing valuation cuts uh, in these difficult markets at the moment. Another point during this year, Chrysalis was trading at a premium, so it's gone all the way from a 16% premium at one point to a 50% discount. Uh, That is really a pretty sorry state of affairs, unfortunately. Then moving on, I'll quickly talk about some fundraising. There hasn't been much again, but it has been some. In this case, we're talking about HICL, the Infrastructure Trust, ticker HICL. They have uh, announced this week that they have raised £160 million sterling through an issue of uh, 94.7 million new ordinary shares at an issue price of 169p. They say that the number of total applications exceeded the gross proceeds accepted and a scaling back exercise has taken place. In other words, some of those who apply for shares will only get a proportion of the amount they applied for. Hickel came to the market, one of the first infrastructure trusts to come to the market in 2006 and has been a steady performer since then, uh, with an NAV total return over that period since launch of around 9% per annum, which was uh, very much in line or slightly ahead of its uh, target when it was first launched. So that, I guess, will be regarded as a successful raise, though uh, the amount, the quantum, represents only a very small amount of the overall market capitalization of Hickel, which is now coming in at around $3.3 billion. And the shares trading at a small premium, 3%. Uh, when I looked at the market prices, we were recording this, uh, it's trading at around 170p, so just slightly over the placing price. Uh, which you might suggest suggest that uh, the appetite for new money, even from these uh, very successful long-term infrastructure trusts, uh, which have a high degree of inflation linking uh, in many cases, including that of Hickel, uh, maybe has waned a little in view of the overall market movements. I'm going to quickly now cover some results. We don't have many results this week, uh, and we won't be covering them in quite the same depth as before because Simon is not here to lend us his authoritative interpretation of events and analysis. So to kick off with the Brunner Investment Trust, ticker BUT. This is a global investment trust. It started out as a family office for the Brunner family. The Brunner family being one of the families that helped to found the chemical companies that became ICI back in the 1920s, which is when the Brunner Investment Trust was uh, first launched, but has moved on to become a trust available to uh, general investors as well. They've had interim results for the six months to the 31st of May, and their NAV total return was just negative 0.5%, which compared to their benchmark, which is 70% FTSE World X UK and 30% FTSE All Share, so a mixed global UK benchmark, uh, that was down 1.3%, so they marginally outperformed. Earnings per share were up 18.4% to 13.5B, 
and dividends of 10.3p declared for the half year. So those dividends are covered by earnings. Uh, and the board says it intends to pay total dividends of 21.5p per share for full year 2022. And that will represent the 51st consecutive year of increases, uh, Bruno being one of the AIC's dividend heroes. Next up, I mentioned Hypnosis Songs Fund, ticker SONG, S-O-N-G, which we can compare to the Roundhill Music Royalty Trust. Hypnosis has put out its annual report for the year to the 31st of March, and during that period it says the operative net asset value total return was 14.2%. A very credible figure, I think you could say, for this particular trust. And the NAV growth was driven by a 9.5% like-for-like valuation uplift in the portfolio. Uh, net revenue increased to 168 million US dollars, up from 138 million in the prior year. And the dividends of 5.25p were paid over the year, which were one times covered by free cash flow. Uh, the target dividend for full year 23 is also being set at 5.25p, so no uh, increase yet announced or expected there. Uh, what the Songs Fund did say is that. Uh, they expect to have material revenues from TikTok in the current financial year. But again, this trust is another example of one that was very popular last year and has been since its launch, trading at a premium for most of its early life. Uh, but it's now trading on a significant discount, something north of 10%, which compares to an average over the last 12 months of 2.5% and a range from a premium of 9% to a discount of 18%. Roundhill Music Royalties is also trading at a discount. Beyond that, I can briefly mention there have been a couple of results from uh, infrastructure debt funds. Uh, so GCP Infrastructure Fund, uh, ticker GCP, they had an NAV update to the 30th of June, showing an increase of 1.4% or 1.56p over the quarter. In other words, compared to the 31st of March, this was driven by an increase in actual forecast cash distribution from its renewables investment portfolio, offset by what it says various other downward movements. So this is a debt fund, not an ordinary infrastructure fund like Hickel. Meanwhile, Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income, ticker SEQI, which is another infrastructure debt fund, uh, that announced that its NAV at 30th of June was down by 0.3% to 98.1p over the month. So uh, unlike... uh, GCP infrastructure, which is now take a quarterly change. This is a monthly change. They say that this was driven by a decrease in asset valuation as long-term interest rates increased and credit spreads widened, uh, mostly affecting the valuations of its fixed-rate loans, which account for 51% of the portfolio. Uh, these two trusts are also both trading on discounts now. Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income is on a 15% discount or so, which compares to an average of 3% premium over the previous year. And uh, GCP Infrastructure is trading on a 5% discount or thereabouts compared to a 2% premium over the last 12 months. A couple more, finally, we've got uh, Schroeder British Opportunities, ticker SBO. They published an annual report, though it's only actually for the nine months to 31st of March, reflecting the fact that they only came to the market last year. This annual report, they've announced that they're 83% invested of the IPO proceeds, and they've invested those into 37 holdings, of which six were private. This trust, the NAV over this period, was a total return of minus 4%, taking time for them to get their money invested. And unfortunately, the share price total return has been even wider, minus 20%, 
as the discount has widened out to uh, nearly 20% from 3.2% uh, at the start of the period. Next uh, results discussed are those of Taylor Maritime Investments, ticker TMI. Uh, this is a shipping company that uh, came to the market uh, only last year in May 2021 and has produced its uh, maiden annual results for the period to the 31st of March. And very impressive they are too. Uh, NAV total return of 81.3% is a very impressive number. Not uh, many IPOs will have managed to deliver that in their first year in NAV terms. Uh, it's been a good year for the uh, company, obviously, uh, driven by improvements in operating profit, increased vessel values, and a gain of 43% on its investment in the grind rod shipping, an investment it made uh, since IPO. This uh, company has 31 vessels with a total market value of 550 million US dollars. As at uh, 31st of March, the company says the average net time charter rate was 18,600 a day with a duration of six months, which compares to uh, comparable figures in June last year of 15,600 per day with average duration of 10 months. As we know, shipping costs rose very sharply last year to do with the issues to do with the combination of global supply shortages and the uh, big surge in commodity prices. So in addition to reflect this uh, good performance, the board, which targets a dividend of 1.75 cents a quarter or 7 cents on an annual basis, has also paid a special dividend, which brings the total dividend paid since IPO, it's not a full year, of course, uh, to 8.47 cents per share. And that represents a dividend yield on the IPO price, the $1 IPO price of approximately 10% on an annualised basis. The company continues to generate excess cash. The only other thing to report at this trust, though, is that despite its very strong uh, NAV performance, it has sold off in the last few months and uh, it continues to trade at quite a large discount, somewhere in the region of 15 to 20%, depending which uh, source you look at, as a market cap of around $360 million and over the last year has traded on average at a premium 1%. So there has been a significant sell-off uh, in the last uh, few months, which was obviously driven by movements in commodity prices and the easing of some of these supply shortages that have driven up charter rates and so on. But still, a very impressive newcomer to the sector. Uh, shipping, though, will always remain a very cyclical business. We have another debt fund as well in the shape of 24 Income, ticker TFIF, which is the largest trust in the specialist debt sector, market cap around 630 million. They produced annual report for the year to 31st of March, during which the NAV total return was 5.55%, which represents a mild underperformance of the target NAV total return of 6 to 9%, but exceeded the target minimum dividend yield of 6%. It's paying full year dividends of 6.77p per share, which is compared to 6.41p uh, the previous year, reflecting the higher income and uh, effect of rising base rates. Uh, additional rate increases in this case will benefit the coupon income through its floating rate bond exposure. Uh, but gearing has been reduced to uh, 2% from earlier 5.8%. Uh, so again, this trust trades on a discount, but it's pretty much uh, only 1% or 2%. 
I want to turn to the question now of what investors should be doing. In your last annual report, which came out quite recently, you said that uh, looking forward, the uh, prospects of broader equity and bond markets remain poor, but recent weaknesses opening up a range of discount opportunities and the potential for further rotation into areas of value over the next 12 months. Perhaps you could explain where those opportunities might lie at the moment. Well, actually, discount opportunities in general trusts have been pretty far and far between in uh, recent years. We've had a very long bull market, and discounts generally are much narrower than they have been even now, even though they've widened a bit. But the really interesting thing is the governments and uh, the improvement in quality of bulls. So I think they have improved. I'm about to get into um, how they can improve further. But uh, they have improved, um, and discounts are generally much lower. And there is a much greater consciousness of boards that they are there to serve shareholders and not the management company, which runs the trust concern. There's a long way to go. Uh, Unfortunately, regulatory change has created circumstances where small trusts and illiquid trusts have no viable future. They have wide spreads, little liquidity, and um, are no longer in a position to serve the private client investor as they have in the past. I think it was Numis came up with an estimate of 340 trusts which had no future. It's a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> um, and there's an understanding of that, but so far, not much in the way of response to it. So we have seen some trusts wind up and change managers. So unfortunately, the manager changes have largely been to switch from general investors to much more tech investors, because that's where the good record has been the last several years, which has just been unluckily time. The more important point, anyway, is that boards have been prepared to change managers and get rid of been performing in a very pedestrian way. But the issue of discounts remains problematic. So there are a lot of trusts which issued very freely. Just to pick an example, but these are just examples. Finsbury Growth and Income Trust uh, issued 137 million shares in the last decade. And if you consider that they're they're about seven or eight pounds, that's that's a lot of money. But now they've gone to a discount. They have been much less vigorous in buying in than they were in issuing. So the board of Finsbury, as I said, there are many examples. So I, I, perhaps being slightly unfair in picking out the two I'm going to pick out. But, but they've talked about how buybacks enhance NAV, which they certainly do. They add liquidity, which they certainly do. And they mitigate discount volatility. But nevertheless, the board allowed the discount to go to 8%. They had a very disappointing first quarter because they had a lot of good companies at very high prices. And those high prices had some of the froth, not of them, not on that nifty 50 in the in seventh election. And sadly, I think Fever Tree is still one of them, which today is full 30%. But that's what happens when you get high growth companies and they disappoint. But um, the point is that allowing a discount to get rid of 8% when you've been issuing freely seems to be really unforgivable. They talk about that they have been in the market, which they have. 
but not nearly vigorously enough. And the idea that you're doing your duty to your shareholders as a, as a director by making token purchases, which is what they amount to if you don't commit to actually absorbing the shares that people want to sell, which obviously you know, they did not, is, I think, very bad because people who bought at a 1% or 2% premium have lost something close to 10% of their money on top of the poor performance of the first quarter. But further than that, I think because of that experience, it's now about 6%, I should say, uh, coming a bit, and performance actually improved in the second quarter. But um, those actions or inactions by the board, I think, have been discouraging uh, or will in the future prove to discourage people from buying again when it goes to a premium. I, it will make the trust smaller over time, which, of course, is the exact opposite of what they're trying to achieve. Uh, they've been very reluctant to accept that in order to grow, it has to get smaller when there's more supply than demand. And very similar situation in, in Smithson, which had a really, truly dreadful first quarter. It's very easy to see why the premium disappeared. But they allowed the discount, they issued 500 million pounds worth of shares last year. But this year, they've allowed the discount to go to over 13. It's now 11. And there's just an asymmetry there, which once again, I would say, is very bad news for the long-term growth of the trust because it undermines the confidence to buy when things are going well at a small premium. Yeah. So as you say, that's often said to be one of the structural advantages of investment trusts that they have superior corporate governments, but these boards really do have to earn their keep. And I know you're quite assiduous in uh, reminding them of that fact. There is a Darwinian process at work in the investment trust sector where we see underperforming trusts disappear. This week, we had another announcement from Scott Gems, for example, which is a emerging market trust, which has not really performed very well. And that is uh, disappearing. And there have been other examples this year. I think what you're saying is that the Darwinian process is not, is not being allowed full reign here. How many lives do you think an investment trust should have? In other words, do you give uh, a board kind of one shot at making things better? Or do you think it should be uh, immediate execution if people underperform yeah. for well, whatever reason? Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the starting place, it's all changed a lot in the last 10 years. The starting place now is that if you're on the board of one of those 340 non-barbell trusts, then you really do need to take action. And if you've got a good manager, there's no reason why with proper action, so a ZDM, like Capital Gearing has, and a number of others, have shown that it's possible to build the size of these trusts to a level where they would be viable if you've got a decent manager. In other words, if you've got an investment process that investors would like to be exposed to. So it's not really so much that their inaction is a short-term disaster. It's just that they will wither on the vine. Um, they have withered on the vine, I would say. Uh, so it's a strange feature of investment trusts that when people become directors, they seem to be very happy if after their nine years, whatever it is, that the number of shares in it is exactly the same as when they arrived. Um, so long as they made sure that it was constantly and honestly managed in, in the interim and hopefully some reasonable control of expenses. It, that's unique. No other company, if people, people join the board with the idea that standing still will be judged to be a success, they should grow. And the opportunity for investment trusts to grow, I think, is great because, as you know, Jonathan, 
the performance of investment trusts has consistently been better than the open-ended funds. Somehow we've got to sort out this failure of the investment trust movement to react to the changing in regulatory environment. And what I hope will happen is that there will be more mergers. It's always a side problem because always some directors who lose their jobs. Surely that can't be a factor. Surely that can't be a factor. Well, well, actually, you're quite right. couldn't be. <laughs> so, so, so let's exclude that. And in fact, I'm told that really obvious mergers. So BlackRock have two small company trusts, which are essentially identical. Really minor differences, but performance is essentially identical. Uh, but I'm told that BlackRock themselves are extremely opposed to merging the two. And so you, you never know quite where the resistance is coming from, but there sure is plenty of resistance somewhere because these motors are, are not happening. And um, where I hope we will end up is with an, a number of trusts with zero discount models, with liquid portfolios, which are much bigger than they are today. So the total amount of money in the investment trust movement grows. And there'll be various specialists of various kinds who may not be susceptible to being huge. So River and Mercantile will be an example of the, the people who, who identified an area where they think they can add considerable value, but it could not be more than £100 million pounds yeah. in that case. Um, so that, that, you know, all part of them, that's um, you know, very specialised and good. And finally, of course, there'll be lots of trusts in different areas from general equity. So this is not one size fits all. But where there are liquid underlying portfolios, there is no reason for the continuum of a hundred million or hundred fifty million pound trust just plugging along. Can I ask you about a couple of other situations and sort of general issues that arise out of them? For example, I don't know if you have any thoughts about Pershing Square Holdings. They get involved in this SPAC, and this week they announced that they were refunding the money to shareholders. I don't know what your comments would be about SPAC. Are they just a, a symptom of the madness, if you like, the kind of excessive zeal that we had in the market last year? Or do you actually yeah, think well, that I there's think something they, in them? I mean, uh, yes, I think they are a symptom. Actually, I'd say cryptocurrencies are another one of excessive liquidity. When history comes to be written, I think neither will meet with great approval. I always remember when um, books were written about the South Sea bubble, one of the you know, so-called amusing, astonishing and ridiculous things was the launching of a company to do something of great advantage, but no one to know what it is. That is a perfect description of a, of a SPAC. So uh, <laughs> it, it's an astonishing development. You take a, a pool of money from shareholders and you say, we're going to invest it, we're going to merge with some company, bring it to the market, but we're not going to tell you what it is yet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so in the news this week, we had some uh, results, for example, from the Brunner Investment Trust. Uh, that's ticker B-U-T, which is one of these old, if you like, family offices that's evolved into a general investment trust. It was one of the ICI founders' family started it back in the 1920s. There are one or two others like that uh, who've been around for many, many years. and They plough on steadily. But they always seem to trade at a discount. Do you have any views? Or, I mean, are they a useful vehicle for investors? And uh, do you think they should be trying to do something about their discounts? There's some other examples yes. out there like Hansa and so on. Do you, you think they should well, be taking well, action as well? I absolutely do. So many years ago, at an AGM of Hansa, I asked if each member of the board could say what they understood the function of a director was. <laughs> and 
they were not allowed to express that opinion. The chairman shut it down very quickly. But of course, it's, it is the, the critical question. And I think a director of a controlled trust has a particular duty, which is to ensure that the interests of the minorities are protected and that the, the outcome for the minorities is no worse than if, if it was not controlled. That would be my definition of what a, a director's duties are in those cases. They plainly do not take the same view. So Hansa, which you mentioned, raised just under 40, 39 discount, which is wider than even than Hansa used to trade on, because people have given up hope that there might be a reform in this, in this case. It, it moved to Bermuda, as you know, and they do have meetings in England, so it's not there's no connection with, with, with shareholders. But nevertheless, it's quite noticeable that, that um, those investment trusts, which are established either in Bermuda or in Amsterdam, have much wider discounts. So Techcom, these days, has a 60-plus discount. Is in, in Amsterdam, so it's quite effective and quite pointless to take the trouble to go to Amsterdam for the AGM, who's control trust. So <laughs> those are the exact sort of occasions. Uh, when directors really need to step up and, and ask themselves, what are we here for? And when they've answered that question, assuming the answer is in some way to serve shareholders, then they should take action. But that is something which has to come from them because they're control trust. There's no way that uh, outside pressure can, can make any difference. This week, we had the annual results from uh, Hypnosis Songs Fund. And uh, we've also had the news that the Round Hill Music Royalty Trust is moving from the specialist fund sector to the main market. And yet this has been an interesting experience. I mean, there's both new newcomers to the sector, relative newcomers to the sector. Uh, started off very promisingly, but they've moved out to quite significant discounts, even though they were pitched as offering you know, uncorrelated returns, which you think would be popular in the current market. Do you have an explanation for why that is? So unco uncorrelated doesn't necessarily mean better, but... No. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to say. As you pointed out at the beginning, there are distinct limitations to my knowledge of the portfolio of song. I am aware that the valuation put on these portfolios of songs has risen very dramatically, which is why large numbers of the writers and performers have been selling in the last uh, couple of years. But it is not a sector that I have ever looked at in any, any depth because I simply don't believe that we now have analyze it. And I've suspect most people don't. You have to have forecasts for how, how persistent the attraction of uh, different songs are and so forth. And they're all very persuasive statistics from the people who manage them. But um, I just feel it's not uh, not something I'm capable of analysing enough detail to give me confidence to, to invest. So we haven't been involved. Let me ask you then one other sectoral question, which is uh, about private equity. I, mean, I was looking through your list of holdings in the annual report, and you don't own many private equity trusts, I think it's fair to say. Um, even though some of them, uh, well, many of them are trading at big discounts, you'd think that might be something that might at least sort of tickle your interest. But right. uh, we've talked so, a lot on the podcast about the valuation uh, risk in there and the, and the pro-cyclicality of private equity trusts and so on. Is there a specific reason why uh, you have been steering clear of private equity trusts, should we say? Yes. I mean, the first reason is the excessive fees that are charged. Although that's improving too, John. There was a time when, when they all charged on an individual basis. So if you had two companies and you bought one, then one, one doubled and the other went bust. 
they'd still take a performance fee on the one that went up, even though shareholders made no money. So that's improving and, and, and so forth. But actually, I think there's a cyclical reason not to own private equity, which is that interest rates are going up. And they're going up a lot for junk bonds, which finances much of, uh, of private equity. Now, most uh, private equity firms in the UK, at any rate, fix their debt. So hopefully it won't impact them too much in the short term. But what it does do is change the valuation on realizations. So if you've got to raise new debt, the yield on, on um, triple C bonds in America is 14%. So that would lower the value of a new acquisition and presumably has a similar effect on the exit prices that private equity is making. So when we talk about discounts, we always have to think about discounts on what? And um, it may be that 50% takes care of that and, and that these companies will um, not have uh, any exciting exits in the short term, but they will thrive and gradually the company will pay down their debt and be fine. And I'm not saying that they should all necessarily be sold when, when they're trading discounts. But equally, it's not an area that excites me going into recession and higher interest rates. Would you perhaps rather own the high-yield bonds than you would actually uh, own the, the equity of the things they're funding? 14% might be quite interesting, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so final, final question on sectors would be about shipping. Uh, this week we had some annual results from Taylor Maritime Investments, uh, which is ticker TMI, another recent newcomer to the sector, and I think one that you were certainly invested in last year, and yet they perform very well. Their net asset value was terrific. But they've also, uh, they and the Tufton Oceanic as well, they've both moved out to discounts uh, since then, having made a pretty good start. Given your views about shipping you mentioned earlier, what do you think about the outlook for that sector? It's a long time since we had a shipping company in the investment trust world, and they didn't yeah. always end up well in the past. I think it's fair to say. But... Yeah. Well, I think um, non-correlated. But shipping is profoundly cyclical. So I would be really quite concerned for container ships because they've had a terrific boom. Um, practically every ship that's been built in the last 18 months has been a container ship. The fleet's growing substantially. And whatever the actual daily rate is uh, for container ships, next year, I think it's a pretty good guess, it'll be significantly lower than it is today. And today, it's quite a lot lower than it was a few months ago. What Taylor Maritime and uh, are things called bulkers, so they ship food around them. Caribbean or, or that sort of thing. But they are, they are also cyclical. Uh, the good news is that very few bulkers are on order. The fleet has, has been growing very, very slowly because they've all gone to container ships. And the um, capacity of the fleet will be influenced by ESG because there will be requirements coming in uh, quite soon that emissions have to be lower than they had been before. They can only be achieved if they steam more slowly. If they all steam more slowly, that takes quite a lot of capacity out of the market. Having said that, it's a cyclical business. If we really do have very slow world growth, global growth, that will be an impact. And there are certainly forecasts out there of significantly lower rates for bulkers as well. We have been persuaded by by the management of Taylor Maritime, that that is unlikely to be correct, or would have to be a very extreme recession to, for that to happen. And on that basis, the returns are very good. 
it doesn't happen on that basis. I'm happy to have a small holding and some exposure to that. But um, the discount is always to the NAV. And if we did have a recession, probably that NAV would, would come out of bit of pressure. Even if Taylor Marriott number right, because the world has to believe it's a hold for the values to hold up. And, um, you know, at this current level, I'm very comfortable with it. But I do understand why there is a discount, as there is a discount on practically everything, every cyclical business, as we look at recession. Well, that brings us to the end, Peter. I'd like to thank you for your taking part in this. I think um, it'd be nice to finish with some sort of positive note for those who do invest in the investment trust sector. And I suppose if we we are talking about parallels of the 1970s, the good news about that is that even if we get there, they will then be followed by something like the 1980s, which is when you started. And uh, there were some <coughs> tremendous, tremendous returns to be had then because the market was trading at single digit P yeah. and uh, the interest rates were coming down, not going up. Uh, so we're in for a bit of a long haul now. But uh, do you think uh, better times will come round again at some point? Yes. I mean, I think broadly, we are in a time when much concentrate on preserving the real value of capital in the hope and expectation that we get to the circumstances of, uh, of 82, which is when I always recommend to fund managers, they start. They will have a build a decent record. Um, so I'm very lucky in that respect. But everything is cyclical. In the end, we will have uh, enough inflation to reduce the real value of debt to levels where, where the medicine to achieve permanently lower inflation can be applied without killing the economy, which is very much the circumstances as we were in the uh, 1980s. So, so everything is cyclical. And yeah, there will be opportunities in years when if you don't make 40%, you're not doing a job. Well, on that basis, uh, <laughs> I think that brings us a very good end note. So thank you again for your, uh, your time today, Peter. Been a pleasure. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.